Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to talk about something I think is pretty important to virtual legality and probably to you and to me, and that is the nature of fair use as an exception to the use of another's copyrighted materials. Now, if you haven't been following this case, and I can't blame you, Google versus Oracle is a long-lived case. I think it's been going on for more than a decade at this point in time, or was going on before the Supreme Court's opinion last week. And it was all about whether or not Google could use code that it took from Oracle, which was then Sun, and its Java platform. And this case is important. It's very long written here. It's 62 pages long. There's a dissent. It's a 6-2 decision in favor of Google. But to understand how it comes about and why it's important to you and me, we have to go through it in some detail. So let's talk about the overview here. As the Supreme Court writes in its opening paragraph of its opinion, Oracle America Inc. is the current owner of a copyright in Java SE, a computer program that uses the popular Java computer programming language. Google without permission, has copied a portion of that program, a portion that enables a programmer to call up pre-written software that, together with the computer's hardware, will carry out a large number of specific tasks. And it's important to note right here, just as a break in reading this introduction, that no one disputes this. No one disputes the concept in Orange that Google, without permission, copied a portion of Oracle's program, the Java platform. And that portion is what is known as declaring code, or at least what the Supreme Court calls declaring code. One thing I would point out is that I am a lawyer. If you haven't been in virtual legality before, I'm not a software engineer. I'm not a computer developer. So I have to yield to uh, my betters in terms of understanding about how all this works, including the Supreme Court and the various parties at issue. If you want to leave a comment to this video explaining how declaring code and implementing code are not properly defined and all those various things, absolutely 100% do it. But what I'm concerned with as part of this video and this case is how the court is reinterpreting the concept of fair use in a way that might apply to you and to I, to anybody that creates content anywhere, uh, and how that's a very interesting and potentially dangerous thing, depending on which side of the issue you fall on. Continuing with the summary from the Supreme Court, the lower courts have considered, one, whether Java SE's owner could copyright the portion that Google copied, whether declaring code was at all copyrightable. We'll come back to that in just a second. And two, if so, whether Google's copying nonetheless constituted a fair use of that material, thereby freeing Google from copyright liability. The federal circuit held in Oracle's favor, i.e. that the portion is copyrightable and Google's copying did not constitute a fair use. This was after a court actually found that the code in question was not copyrightable. As I said, this has been going on for a very, very long time. Now, what is the notion of copyrightability? That lays here in 17 USC 102, which actually establishes what's copyrightable and what's not. Copyright protection subsists in original works of authorship fixed in any tangible medium of expression, including literary works, musical works, dramatic works, pantomimes, etc. Now, you won't see referenced here computer programs. Those are actually incorporated into the concept of literary works, but we'll come back to that in just a second. It's also worth noting that, as I said, that first court found that this particular kind of code was not protected because it fell under B. In no case does copyright protection for an original work of authorship extend to any, among other things, system or method of operation. This particular court found that the code wasn't protectable because it just organized a bigger platform and what Google took for their Android platform was just the organizational concepts. Federal Circuit comes in and says, no, no, 
it's copyrightable. It's its own expression of these kinds of things. As we've talked about in virtual legality, you can't copyright something like the idea of a ghost haunting a Victorian mansion. But when you write a book or a story about it or make a TV show, that expression of that concept is protected. The courts have been fighting about this for a long time in respect of Google versus Oracle. But the notion of declaring code in an API had at the federal circuit level at least been determined to be an expression of structure, of method, of a system, and so copyrightable. And then you get to the fair use question. Now, as I promised, I do want to bring up that there is a definition for computer program in the Copyright Act as a set of statements or instructions to be used directly or indirectly in a computer in order to bring about a certain result. I bring that up not because it actually appears in the granting statute here that talks about who gets a copyright, but because Justice Thomas in the dissent to this particular case is going to rely heavily on this definition, in particular on the notion that a computer program can indirectly tell a computer to do something and that declaring code, even though it isn't quote unquote implementing code that does the thing that you're asking the computer to do, is still indirectly leading to the computer doing that thing and so is subject to copyright protection as a computer program. I don't know that that's necessarily a compelling aspect of what Justice Thomas has to say, but I wanted to bring it up because it is important. Now, what did the Supreme Court ultimately decide here? And we're going to go through a lot more after this, but this is how they introduce things so that readers can follow along with what the Supreme Court is ultimately going to say. They said, in reviewing that decision, we assume, for argument's sake, that the material was copyrightable, but we hold that the copying here at issue nonetheless constituted a fair use. Hence, Google's copying did not violate the copyright law. So by a six to two decision, the Supreme Court decides that Google taking this Oracle code, putting it into Android was copyrightable, but constituted a fair use. Or more specifically, even though I just articulated it that way and a number of people have reported it that way on the internet, the Supreme Court punted the question of copyrightability, said we aren't gonna figure that out. We're just gonna talk about fair use. And before we even get started talking about that fair use analysis, I do want to point out how that isn't what I would have anticipated here. That isn't the greatest way, in my opinion, for the Supreme Court to make a decision like this, because as we talk about fair use as kind of an exception to the applicability of copyright law, one of the first questions you have to answer is, is the thing copyrighted? Is it copyrightable? Before you even get to the fair use question, if you haven't read a Supreme Court decision or really any other kind of legal decision before, you know, you don't know that one of the things that the court has to do is say, hey, we're going to narrowly tailor our decision to only what is necessary to arrive at a dispositive outcome. In my opinion, if you determine that the API code here that's at issue is not copyrightable, that's the only thing that you should arrive at before you even get to fair use. The other kind of thing that rubs me potentially a little bit the wrong way in a decision like this one is that fair use as an analysis, even at the Supreme Court level, is not as useful as a legal reading of whether this particular code is copyrightable because fair use is and always will be a facts and circumstances based analysis. Now, before we kind of go in and we're going to talk about the dissent and some other aspects of this, the other thing I would say is I'm skipping one portion of the case. If you go and you read this, it will, of course, be linked in the description to this video that is about who is deciding whether fair use applies or not. The case actually makes very clear, perhaps for the first time, I think others have talked about it a little bit, that the court is responsible for determining whether fair use applies, even in the case of a jury trial, where a jury can determine the facts that happened, the interpretation of the fair use factors, 
But at the end of the day, the court is responsible because it's a question of law and not one of fact. That's very interesting. That's going to be useful to copyright attorneys and litigators that are focused on this issue. It isn't that terribly interesting to actually what happened with respect to this particular case. Now, before we dive into fair use, I do want to bring up the dissent. You will see these titled in red in this video uh, because I think it's enormously useful. And I found this out in law school and certainly in reading these kinds of cases and other uh, articles about cases uh, in the past to bring up the dissent at the same time that the opinion is applying whatever analysis it's applying to the question at hand. And I do that because I think it helps clarify exactly what the two kind of poles uh, of consideration are here. Here, we've got a fight about copyrightability that mirrors a little bit of what I just said. The court reaches its unlikely result in large part because it bypasses the antecedent question clearly before us. Is the software code at issue here protected by the Copyright Act? The majority purports to assume without deciding that the code is protected, but its fair use analysis is wholly inconsistent with the substantial protection Congress gave to computer code. The Copyright Act expressly protects computer code. It recognizes that a computer program is protected by copyright, and it defines computer program as a set of statements or instructions to be used directly or indirectly in a computer in order to bring about a certain result. That definition clearly covers declaring code, sets of statements that indirectly perform computer functions by triggering pre-written implementing code. And so one of the things that Justice Thomas wants to establish is that he thinks that the court punted on the copyrightability question primarily because he thinks it's self-evident that when you apply their fair use analysis to something that is copyrightable, there is no instance in which the code in question here couldn't be used by another party. That they are analyzing something so broadly that if they had said in their opinion that it is copyrightable, but this fair use analysis applies, that it would be self-evident to any lawyer and anybody that was complaining about their decision process that there was no protection to be afforded to what they otherwise claim is copyrightable material. And so he thinks that's the reason why they punted the issue. I couldn't tell you, I can't read their minds as to why they punted the issue, but I do agree with him that it is not terribly useful that they, they decided not to opine on it at all, leaving the courts in a continued state of limbo as to whether or not a specific aspect of declaring code or other aspects of an API are in fact protectable. Now let's get into the meat of what I want to talk about in this video. If you haven't been in virtual legality before, fair use is one of our most popular topics. People ask me about it all the time, primarily because you see it on YouTube, you see it on Twitch or Facebook and somebody else using clips of something and whether or not they can use it and claiming that it's fair use and all these various things. Fair use is an exception to the express rights of a copyright holder to prevent others from using their stuff says in 17 U.S.C. 107, notwithstanding the provisions of 106 and 106A, the, the provisions that say you can't use other people's copyrighted stuff, the fair use of a copyrighted work, including such use by reproduction in copies or phono records or by any other means specified by that section, for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, including multiple copies for classroom use, scholarship or research, is not an infringement of copyright. Now, a couple things to note here in fair use land, this is not an exhaustive list, right? For purposes such as means that your purpose has to be something like this, similar to criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research. And if it is, 
it's not an infringement of copyright. Now, if you're listening, you could probably say, well, okay, Google took it to make Android smartphones. That doesn't seem to match up with any of these. And I would say, yep, this isn't a great fit for fair use. That's one of the reasons why the court really has to stretch to make it apply. Now, how do you interpret whether something is like these things? Well, you use four factors. In determining whether the use made of a work in any particular case is a fair use, the factors to be considered shall include, again, not an exhaustive list, the purpose and character of the use, including whether such use is of a commercial nature or is for nonprofit educational purposes, the nature of the copyrighted work, the amount and substantiality of the portion used in relation to the copyrighted work as a whole, how much you used, and the effect of the use upon the potential market for or value of the copyrighted work. So purpose and character, nature, amount, and effect on the market. If you've been here before, you know we've talked about these particular factors a lot. It's also worth noting, as I said earlier, that this is a facts and circumstances-based concept. It's a balancing test, and different courts can take the very same facts and say, okay, this one goes to Google, this one goes to Oracle, this one goes to Oracle, this one goes to Google, it's two versus two, but I think these two are more important and I'm giving it to Google or I'm giving it to Oracle or any other two parties in a fair use question. It's one of the reasons why fair use is such shaky ground to base your use of someone else's material on. Not only do you have to go through the court process to get to the point of actually invoking a fair use defense, but even if you do and you think you have the right of it, the court can just interpret things in a way that you don't expect, which I think is what happened here. So let's take a look at the factors. Now, we're going to start in the order that is presented by the Supreme Court, in nature of the work taken. Now, if you say, hey, that's not the first one that's listed, and most times the court is going to go through an order, you're right. Justice Thomas thinks that they focus on the nature of the work taken in order to confuse things and because their analysis doesn't work without it. I'll leave that to your discretion and opinion as you go through these with me, but he thinks it's done out of order deliberately to confuse the issue. Unlike many other programs, Declaring code's use is inherently bound together with uncopyrightable ideas, general task division and organization, and new creative expression, Android's implementing code, or Oracle's or Sun's implementing code. It's a little bit weird that they go straight to Android on this analysis. Unlike many other programs, its value in significant part derives from the value that those who do not hold copyrights, namely computer programs, programmers invest of their own time and effort to learn the API system. In our view, for the reasons just described, and again, please do read the case if you're interested. I can only do so much in YouTube format and trying to bring it in at something under an hour uh, to highlight exactly what the decision-making process is here. And they do have other reasons or they are more broadly described in the opinion itself. The declaring code is, if copyrightable at all, we're still not committing to that, further than our most computer programs, such as the implementing code, from the core of copyright. So the court is actually going forward and saying the nature of the work taken, usually an analysis that says, okay, what was taken? Was it fictional? Was it a video of something that happened in the world? Did it take creative effort? What kind of thing did you take? Because if the more creative it is, the more we're going to protect it, the more we're going to side with the creator of the content over you, the other user of the content. And they say, well, it's bound together with uncopyrightable concepts, right? The structure, the method, the things that we can't copyright. So maybe it shouldn't get as much protection. Its value isn't given by Oracle slash Sun. 
It's given by the people that invested their time in learning their language and the system. And because of those reasons, it's not close to the core of copyright. And so one of the things that I will say before we dive a little bit further into all of these factors, the court ultimately gives them all to Google gives all the factors to Google, all four, which means you don't have to balance much of anything because you don't even have an Oracle win on any of the four factors. So they say this factor, looking at the nature of the work, because it's declaring code in an API, it is in favor of Google being allowed to use it. Now, the dissent, of course, disagrees and says, hey, when we talk about nature of the work, this is what we mean. This factor requires courts to assess the level of creativity or functionality in the original work. It generally favors fair use when a copyrighted work is more informational or functional than creative, which is one of the arguments that you would have here, right? Well, it's functional. It's menus in a restaurant. It's not actually the content of whatever it is that you're doing with respect to the computer program. That's the implementing code. The dissent disagrees, says, if anything, declaring code is closer to the core of copyright. Developers cannot even see implementing code. Implementing code thus conveys no expression to developers Declaring code, in contrast, is user-facing. Responding to the rest of the opinion's complaints, they say, true, declaring code is inherently bound together with uncopyrightable ideas, but is anything not? We have not discounted a work of authorship simply because it is associated with non-copyrightable ideas. While ideas cannot be copyrighted, expression of those ideas can. Similarly, it makes no difference that the value of declaring code depends on how much time third parties invest in learning it. A theater cannot copy a script simply because it wants to entice actors to switch theaters and because copying the script is more efficient than requiring the actors to learn a new one. And you look at this and you look at what the various opinions are, what the justices have said. And one of the things that I look at is the nature of the work is clearly a commercial enterprise. It is made by a business to function as software. There are portions of the opinion that I have not highlighted here that point out that one of the things that Sun was trying to do when they were building this language and this platform was to make it simple, to make it efficient, to make it attractive to future programmers, and that there is an amount of creativity in that effort. And it's a creativity that was useful enough to Google to copy it. It's also worth noting that not everybody in the world of big tech took Java's code and copied it on themselves. The opinion actually says, I think Apple did their own thing and some other folks did their own thing in order to not pay for Java licenses, but also not to take their code directly. Google went the other path. And of course, they were vindicated by the Supreme Court in this decision. So at this point, you've got an impasse between the opinion and the dissent on the nature of the work taken. This is one of the more important issues because this is really what the opinion that the Supreme Court gives relies upon. Now, one of the things that might be interesting is if you go and you take your own notes as to where you fall on this discussion on each of the four factors. I tend to agree with the dissent that at least the court is not being terribly honest about how it's making its decision. The third party doesn't really matter. That doesn't take away from things. The combination with uncopyrightable ideas doesn't change things. Expressions are always expressing things that are uncopyrightable. So that doesn't change things. And I would tend to argue that the nature of the work is more commercial than not. And I would side with Oracle slash Sun on that as being something that we would ordinarily think is not something that's terribly easy to grab and use for fair use purposes. Now, in terms of the purpose and character of the use, right? This is what the other party is going to do with it. And one of the things that has always come up, and you've seen it discussed on YouTube and on Twitter law and wherever else you might see fair use discussed, is commercial activity is bad, right? That 
if you are using something commercially, you are less likely to win a fair use argument. And that is in fact the case and the court just kind of hand waves it away. It says Google copied portions of the Sun Java API precisely. And it did so in part for the same reason that Sun created those portions, namely to enable programmers to call up implementing programs that would accomplish particular tasks. Google's use of the Sun Java API seeks to create new products. It seeks to expand the use and usefulness of Android-based smartphones. Its new product offers programmers a highly creative and innovative tool for a smartphone environment. Now, the reason that second quote exists is because one of the uses that you can have of copyrighted material that the courts are generally going to be okay with, they're going to like, is what we call transformational use. And one of the issues that the dissent brings up here is that the court has confused what transformation means, right? They say that it's transformational, even though you took the Java API, you took the declaring code, and you used it in the Android software platform for the same reason that Sun put, built their code in the same manner as they built their code. But because your Android platform on smartphones allows folks to create new products, it is transformational, effectively on the second level. That, yeah, you used it for the same reason, but you used it in a different market for a different purpose. And so because it could potentially make new products, we are going to give you transformation on the score sheet for the fair use factors. Now, the dissent, as you can probably imagine, is having none of it. The second most important factor requires us to consider whether use was commercial and whether it was transformative. Begin with the overwhelmingly commercial nature of Google's copying. In 2015 alone, the year before the fair use trial, Google earned $18 billion from the Android platform. The majority also acknowledges that Google used the copied declaring code for the same reason Oracle did. So by turns, the majority transforms the definition of transformative. Now, we are told transformative simply means, at least for computer code, and we'll get back to that at the end of the video, a use that will help others create new products. The dissent gets a little feisty here. That new definition eviscerates copyright. A movie studio that converts a book into a film without permission not only creates a new product, the film, but enables others to create products, film reviews, merchandise, YouTube highlight reels, late night television interviews, and the like. Nearly every computer program, once copied, can be used to create new products. Surely, the majority would not say that an author can pirate the next version of Microsoft Word simply because he can use it to create new manuscripts. Ultimately, the majority wrongly conflates transformative use with derivative use. To be transformative, a work must do something fundamentally different from the original, a work that simply serves the same purpose in a new context, which the majority concedes is true here, is derivative, not transformative. And in the Copyright Act, the bundle of sticks that a copyright owner receives protects reproduction, copying, of course, but it also protects the copyright owner's ability to make derivative works. So what Justice Thomas in the dissent is saying here is that you take that code, you use it for the same purpose, you didn't transform anything. What you did is you created a derivative, you applied it differently. If someone were to make a movie out of a book, that's not a transformation under the copyright law, that's a derivative work. We would expect the writer, the owner of the book to have some kind of case for infringement against the movie studio that just decided to make a movie out of it. But that the Supreme Court here confuses the issue in order to give this factor as well to Google. And I tend to agree once again, with the dissent, that there seems to be a conflation of concepts here that doesn't make a ton of sense to me, but that 
seems to be driven by a kind of pragmatism. And it's a pragmatism I can understand. To back up a step before we go to the second two factors here is the Google Oracle fight was something that was covered by a lot of folks in technology and a lot of journalists and a lot of time was spent kind of trying to convince the Supreme Court that if Google weren't allowed to use the Java declaring code for this purpose, then it would cause massive trouble across the software industry because people are constantly borrowing snippets of things and using things, and that's how software evolves. And to some extent, that's right. That is how software evolves. You've got people sharing, you've got people borrowing concepts, and this is how software programmers want to use things, et cetera, et cetera. The difficulty is that the Supreme Court, as much as I would like to say that they are constantly driven by an analysis of the law and a fair understanding of what's happening before them and in just deciding things in black and white and the letter of the law, it just factually isn't the case. So what you do have is, depending on the case, a certain block of justices on the Supreme Court that is going to take a pragmatic approach. They're going to look at these various briefs that are given by parties and say it would be very bad if you decided this way. And instead of analyzing things specifically on the legal ramifications, they're going to look at it and say, okay, I do believe, I do agree that it would be very bad if I ruled against this. Hey, I'm sitting here and telling you that I'm siding with the dissent on the first two factors, and I probably decide aside with the dissent on a little bit more. And still looking at it and saying, well, I don't know that that would be the best thing for industry or the public at large while analyzing what the actual Copyright Act tells me to do. Some justices look at that kind of calculation and say, well, then in the interest of justice or equity or whatever it might be, I'm going to decide things in this other direction. The problem is they have to write a document that gives an opinion on these facts. And somebody that's more textualist is more analyzing things based solely on what the law says specifically is going to hold their feet to the fire in a manner that Justice Thomas is doing here. So I do think certainly the author and probably some of the other justices believe what they're saying here with respect to fair use. I don't think it's all of the six person majority. And I do think there is a pragmatism that says, hey, I think Google should win this fight because I think there are negative ramifications if they don't. And so I'm going to side with the opinion of the Supreme Court uh, because I think that's going to be best for the public and society at large. You can be a pragmatic court justice if you want in my comments to this video. If you think that that's the right way to handle things, I'm certainly more than interested in hearing your thoughts on these particular issues. But letter of the law, the way fair use has been interpreted before, I do start to get worried when you've got things that say, well, because other people are invested in this, it's not really Oracle's value, it's other people's value. And so that value should be shared with Google. You start to, if you broaden that concept out, get into real trouble with other things outside the world of declaring code and APIs and even computer programs. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to make this video. Now let's continue on with amount and substance. You might think, hey, they've already said they've took 11,500 lines of code. That's going to be a lot. But the court, once again, as I said, sides with Google. If one considers the declaring code in isolation, the quantitative amount of what Google copied was large. Google copied the declaring code for 37 packages of the Sun Java API, totaling approximately 11,500 lines of code. Those lines of code amount to virtually all the declaring code needed to call up hundreds of different tasks. On the other hand, if one considers the entire set of software material in the Sun Java API, the quantitative amount of copied was small. The total set of Sun Java API computer code, including implementing code, amounted to 2.86 million lines, of which the copied 11,500 lines were only 0.4%. Now, even before I read the dissent for this case, I thought that 
line of argument was a bit specious. You don't usually divide it that way. If you've got an entire set, an entire type of code that you've taken and is useful in some respect, that's what you actually do the math on, not saying, hey, but the whole thing is much bigger. It would be like stealing a chapter of War and Peace and then saying, well, but War and Peace is super large, so it's not plagiarism and it's not copyright infringement because it's a small percentage of what the overall book is. That's just not how copyright and fair use as a concept has historically worked, which of course, once again, the dissent winds up calling them out on. We have to continue with the opinion a little bit first though. Several features of Google's copying suggest that the better way to look at the numbers is to take into account the several million lines that Google did not copy. Google copied those lines not because of their creativity, their beauty, or even in a sense because of their purpose. It copied them because programmers had already learned to work with the Sun Java API system and it would have been difficult, perhaps prohibitively so, to attract programmers to build its Android smartphone system without them. And that's just a wild line of argument. And you saw this same line of argument with respect to nature of the work and purpose and character of the use, which is to say the main thrust of the Supreme Court's opinion here is Oracle's value in the code is because other people have used it and liked it, and it would have been too hard for Google. It would have been prohibitive to have programmers attracted to their language when they could just take the Java language that people already knew and people already liked. And much like the dissent said with respect to purpose and character, where they said, you can't just steal a script because the actors already know the lines and it's easier for you. I once again come to the same kind of conclusion, which is to say, if you want to decide that the better number is the overall API, you can make a framework where you decide that, where you say, well, the API doesn't work without all the lines of code, so we should take the full number, we get to 0.4%. You can justify it that way. But to actually say, we didn't take it because of its purpose, that's effectively not true. We know, everybody knows, that Google took it for its usefulness and its purpose and its value. It had value, that's why they took it. What the court tries to do is say, well, that value didn't belong to Oracle slash Sun, it belonged to the programmers that decided to invest in learning it, which is crazy and has implications for other concepts of fair use, right? That value isn't yours. It isn't the copyright owners because your value is derived from other people liking it, other people knowing it. Does this apply to languages on the whole? Where does this line of reasoning stop? And like I promised, the dissent calls them out on it. Google does not dispute the Federal Circuit's conclusion that it copied the heart or focal points of Oracle's work. The declaring code is what attracted programmers to the Java platform and why Google was so interested in that code. And Google copied that code verbatim, which weighs against fair use. The majority does not disagree. The majority points out that the 11,500 lines of declaring code were just a fraction of the code in the Java platform. But the proper denominator is declaring code, not all code. A copied work is quantitatively substantial if it could serve as a market substitute for the original work or potentially licensed derivatives of that work. So another way, the whole code is not a substitute for the concept of the declaring code. So we should only look at what is a substitute for the code that was taken. And again, I sit here and I want to say, look, I understand why software programmers and developers want to say, maybe Google should win this because I want to be able to use certain lines of code myself. And I get that. But in the reasoning that the Supreme Court gives, I have major, major issues. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it with you all today. Finally, we have the fourth fair use factor, which I think is the biggest surprise that I had. I thought for sure 
that the court would acknowledge that there was a substantial effect on the market from Google's taking of this code. Here's what the court actually says. And this is a portion of the case that will be quoted forever as people try to justify their quote unquote fair use of another's copyrighted material. A potential loss of revenue is not the whole story. We must take into account the public benefits the copying will likely produce. Are those benefits, for example, related to copyright's concern for the creative production of new expression? Are they comparatively important or unimportant when compared with dollar amounts likely lost, taking into account as well the nature of the source of the loss? Now, we have to decode that a little bit, but what's really, really important is that the court goes out there and says, when we are looking at the effect on the market factor, loss in revenue is not where we stop. We must take into account public benefits that copying will produce. Now, if you go with me back to the fair use factors here, and we read number four, the effect of the use upon the potential market for or value of the copyrighted work, you tell me where you see an analysis of public benefit because I don't believe it's there, but maybe you can spot it. No, the fourth factor was supposed to be about the market value of the copyrighted work. This of the copyrighted work affects the entire concept of what we're talking about. If you skip that, if you say, well, we're not just worried about the value of the copyrighted work, then yeah, you can justify anything. And again, this is such as and including and facts and circumstances and any court can decide anything. If at bare minimum, you take nothing else away from this virtual legality episode, take that. Even the Supreme Court can just start making up stuff. And you might agree with where they wind up. There's no problem there. Reasonable minds can differ. That's not an issue. You think Google has the right of this whole thing and this justification is perfect. That's fine. But it would be hard to anticipate that the Supreme Court would do a deep dive analysis on the fair use factors and arrive at stuff like this. It's all new. And the Supreme Court is the highest law in the land, so others will quote this. It's not just revenue. We must take into account the public benefits the copying will produce. And that, that, my friends, is a slippery slope. Can I steal that thing, even though it will destroy my competitor's market, if I can say they were just trying to do something that wouldn't have helped the public that much, but mine is going to help the public a lot? Does that get you this fair use factor? I don't know after reading this. You don't know either. The parties don't know. And the cost of litigation just went up because the ambiguities introduced here are broad and far reaching. Are those benefits, for example, related to copyright's concern for the creative production of new expression? So can I steal things now? Can I take copyrighted material if I purport to or actually do somehow advantage more free expression? Can I go and take instruction books that are published somewhere? Because if I take those instruction books, someone else can build a platform that can make new stuff. Is that kind of copyright stealing more allowed now than it was before last week? Because the effect of the market is to enhance public creativity. Or are they comparatively important or unimportant when compared with dollar amounts likely lost. Let's take the public benefits, run it against the revenue, and also let's discount the revenue lost if we don't think it was theirs to earn, taking into account as well the nature of the source of the loss. As the court continues here, they say, well, that wasn't really Oracle's money or Sun's money. 
This source of Android's profitability has much to do with third parties, say programmers, investment in Sun Java programs. It has correspondingly less to do with Sun's investment in creating the Sun Java API. It has to do with their customer's investment, not the creation of the product to begin with. We have no reason to believe that the Copyright Act seeks to protect third parties' investment in learning how to operate a created work, which again is just a raw assertion of the Supreme Court. Sun, Oracle, didn't have an investment in putting that language together, in building that platform. It was the fact that third parties liked it. That's where the value lived. Now, as you can imagine from the rest of this video and the rest of the analysis, the dissent disagrees. Google eliminated the reason manufacturers were willing to pay to install the Java platform. With a free product available that included much of Oracle's code, device manufacturers no longer saw much reason to pay to embed the Java platform. Amazon, as a for instance, and they give a bunch of examples here in this section, used the cost-free availability of Android to negotiate a 97.5% discount on its license fee with Oracle. Google interfered with opportunities for Oracle to license the Java platform to developers of smartphone operating systems. Google tried no fewer than four times to license it. By copying the code and releasing Android, Google eliminated Oracle's opportunity to license its code for that use. If these effects on Oracle's potential market favor Google, something is very wrong with our fair use analysis. The other thing that the court winds up saying in this section is basically that because Java as a platform was not interested in smartphone development in and of itself, that that meant that Google was doing something else and it wasn't really affecting the market for the code. Now that's the Supreme Court just skipping the nature of what this even is as a software platform. And by its very nature, Google wanting to have it, stealing 11,500 lines should suggest to you that there was a market to sell it. If someone is willing to take it from you, they would have been willing to buy it for some price and there was a market for that price. The fact that the numbers for every potential user of Java went down is significant on the effect on the market. Now, Justice Thomas, I don't believe, really grapples with this whole notion of public benefit that the court introduces and will undoubtedly be something discussed by lawyers and law journals uh, for a good long time from here. But he does point out that it is ludicrous to assume that there was no effect on the market for the Java code when Android was out there being offered for free on an ad-based revenue model and thus undercutting Oracle completely to the point where Amazon negotiated a 97.5% discount. There are other parties that you can read about in the opinion that also negotiated those discounts and really just killed the entirety of the market for the Java API. If that is in fact the case then, if you're scoring at home, I've got basically three factors going Oracle's way, potentially four, depending on what you want to do uh, with the nature of the copyrighted work. So does the dissent. And nevertheless, the law of the land six to two is that based on what they just analyzed, we reached the conclusion that in this case, where Google re-implemented a user interface, taking only what was needed to allow users to put their accrued talents to work in a new and transformative program, Google's copying of the Sun Java API was a fair use of that material as a matter of law. Now, some folks have gone out on social media and in articles and suggested that this is broader than it actually is. Fair use is always about facts and circumstances. The Supreme Court actually goes very far in this sentence alone to try to say that the conclusion we reached in this case, where all of this happened, 
says that Google doing this specific thing that we just talked about for 40 pages was a fair use as a matter of law. That isn't broadly applicable to a whole host of other facts and circumstances that might arrive. The issue is that this was pretty clearly as bright line a test as you can have on something like declaring code in an API. That Google took it, they knew they took it, they tried to license it beforehand, Oracle was upset, they were both willing to fight over it in litigation for 10 years. This was as clear a case as you can have to say, if there is a problem with this kind of behavior at all, this is the kind of thing that Google should lose. This suggests that there is nothing that you could do with respect to declaring code in an API to really rub the court system the wrong way, which is in fact what Justice Thomas winds up saying. Congress rejected categorical distinctions between declaring and implementing code, but the majority creates just such a distinction. The result of this distorting analysis is an opinion that makes it difficult to imagine any circumstances in which declaring code will remain protected by copyright. And as I said at the top of this video, that's the reason that Justice Thomas believes they didn't decide the copyrightability question at all is because it would be too obvious that if they say it's copyrightable, but then have this fair use analysis, there's very limited circumstances under which that apparently copyright protected material would ever actually get the benefit of that copyright. And that's Google versus Oracle. That is a case that I think is going to have long-lasting ramifications. Whether or not it applies specifically just to code is one of those implications that is going to have to be decided by the court systems sooner rather than later. In fact, Justice Thomas, in one of his footnotes, and what I always say is if you're reading Supreme Court decisions or any kind of court decision, look for the footnotes because that's where the really bite, biting commentary comes from. It says, because the majority's reasoning would undermine copyright protection for so many products, long understood to be protected. I understand the majority's holding as good for declaring code only precedent, because if it were to apply to books and movies and television and posters and whatever else it might be, then this kind of analysis where you talk about, hey, effect on the market has to take into account the public and just the fact that you lost 97% of your revenues when this went live and was offered free to your competitors, that doesn't matter. That the nature of the work uh, as being built specifically for this purpose, it's use and a commercial indicator uh, for no educational or commentary or news reporting based uh, instances is trouble. That it can't possibly apply to everything, says Justice Thomas, because to do so would eviscerate the Copyright Act in its entirety which I think is where I will wind up leaving you here in virtual legality. This has been Google versus Oracle, but I do think there's a lot more to talk about. And I might well do a follow-up to this, talking about fair use, certainly as it's implemented by the courts now trying to interpret a Supreme Court lead position that says all these multivaried things about fair use that really leans in favor of use really weakens, in my opinion, a lot of copyright defenses. And in a way, that might or might not be good for society on the whole. Please leave your comments to this video on how you feel about Google versus Oracle. Hopefully this provides a little bit of additional understanding. I couldn't do videos this long lasting with this many slides, with this much research and analysis without the support of viewers like you of this channel. Please consider joining the Patreon. We've got a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, donating via Streamlabs, buying a shirt, a mug below, or at bare minimum, Every tiny little bit helps this channel. Just subscribe, ring the bell, leave a comment for Google. Tell me how awesome I am, how silly I am, how you disagree entirely with everything that I stand for. And most importantly, tell your friends that we're having these conversations here. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. 
It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.